0: Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on policy and law. I'm Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined, as always, by Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Richard, how are
1: you? I'm fine, thank you.
0: you well, well Ritch- this morning. Well, Richard, as always, there's a lot in the news these days, but among other things, President Trump in recent days has taken to Twitter and elsewhere to refer once again to the Mueller investigation, uh, to refer to the president's power, as he claims, to be able to pardon himself if necessary. Uh, And so as the investigation continues and President Trump's uh, public arguments with the investigation continue, we thought it would be a good moment to take a step back Uh, and review where things stand and the constitutional issues that continue to surround this investigation and the president's response to it. So, Richard, what's your current assessment of the Mueller investigation?
1: Well, I think we've got a number of issues that we have to talk about. One is, I think, just the question about the progress of this investigation and the way in which it has gone. It's, I think, now past the one-year mark, and pretty much everything is still under wraps. And my own view about this is that the time is not a neutral factor. Uh, It is very much in favor of those people who wish to undermine the president, so long as he's under suspicion to the fact that he may have been colluding with the Russians over the presidential election. Election in 2016, it's necessarily going to place a dark cloud over him to the extent that he tries to deal either with Congress on these issues or more importantly with foreign governments. Uh, the president certainly cuts a very broad path when he's dealing with North Korea, with Putin and the G7 and so on. It's not that I want to support all of the things he says. Indeed, many of them I'm strongly opposed to. Uh, but I do think, in effect, that this thing is a constant kind of overhang. I think in the domestic policy arena, it's it's crazy for yet another sort of reason. Uh, What happens is the longer this thing goes on, the more divisive these sentiments are. On the one side, there are many people, and I think I'm inclined to join this group, who think that this investigation has nothing that's going on there because if it did, he would have by now been able to file some kind of a paper. Uh, It is not the case, however, that he's chosen to indict anybody close to this for what they've actually done in 2016. Um, And there have been other investigations which have come up empty. So it seems to me that there's a heavy burden on Mr. Muller to come up with something very grand to explain what's going on. But on the other side, based on the same lack of evidence, there are many people who start to say that, look, this man is such a profound and deep strategic thinker uh, that he's going to wait till the last possible moment to come up with a case that's so overpoweringly strong that the president will be forced to resign or something of the sort. And you know, when you get that kind of divergence, what it does is it tends to poison the political well because it's very difficult to come up with some kind of position in the middle. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing that it does is it induces the president to make claims which are grandiose, not incorrect, but grandiose and potentially divisive, again, of Those, the leading one is his recent statement that he has the power to pardon himself. As usual, he gives it in the kind of dramatic overstatement associated with presidential tweets. And he announces that there are legal scholars who agree with him. Um, I did a short piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I gave him half a loaf. I think he's right that he does have the power to engage in self-pardon. I don't think there's any way to stop it. I don't think it's a judicial proceeding. I don't think he has to show a lack of bias and so forth. But the pardon is, in fact, not an absolute power. If he gave a pardon to somebody by taking a bribe, he could be punished for a high crime and misdemeanor. And if he pardoned himself for any reason, whether it's good or silly, there is still the impeachment power. And that expressively overrides the president's power Uh, to start to deal with this issue. I think in effect that he's probably right on the fact that he can do this, although it's very clear that the effect is going to be limited. And then I think the third question is there's still a bunch of claims out there about saying that the entire presidential, about the the Mueller investigation of the president is ill-conceived because the uh, Mueller is a superior officer. Whose uh, or principal offices whose appointment was not done with advice and consent of the Senate? Uh, That was an argument made by Steve Calabresi in the Wall Street Journal some couple of days ago or weeks ago. So I think on balance, it's probably wrong. I think he is to some extent somebody who could be appointed by the attorney general and be supervised him. I do think there's an irony that he wasn't appointed by the attorney general. He's appointed by the acting attorney general. And it's also, I think, very clear that the supervision is likely to be more limited than general. And it's also equally clear uh, that that nobody's going to remove this man from office, so that he does have a degree of practical independence, which is inconsistent with his constitutional status as an inferior office. So anyhow, Adam, I toss all three of these points back to you. Uh, that's what my current thinking is. And if I've missed something, I'm sure your
0: eagle eye will pounce on it. Well there's a lot to unpack in there. Let me try to let's start with them in order. And and before we get to the constitutional issues, just the practical point that you raise. Uh the investigation's been going on now for by Mueller for for a year. Um, there's no end in sight, no matter how many times the president's advisors have told the president that the, the end is just around the corner, whether it was the investigation be over by last year, Thanksgiving or or by the spring. It's going on and on. There's really no end in sight. And I don't find there to be any real reason to believe that this will be over before the midterm elections. Uh, but, of course, the the delay in concluding an investigation isn't necessarily exclusively the fault of the investigator. Um, the 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 target of an investigation has a lot of tools uh, by which to delay investigations. Uh, the president more so than any other uh, person involved in an investigation. Uh, the president wanted to end this investigation. Um, first of all, there's a question of whether he could fire Mueller. But setting all that aside. The president could walk over to Mueller's office tomorrow and sit down and answer all of Mueller's questions if he'd like. And, of course, the president won't do that and probably shouldn't do that. Um, But if the president wanted to bring this to a swift conclusion, he has it within his power to do it by first and foremost being completely transparent. So how much of the fault do you think stands with the the president and his lawyers for delaying this? Because if the problem is that the investigation itself – is detracting from the business of government um, and preventing the president or his advisors from doing their jobs, uh, which is a a fair question, um, then shouldn't the president himself err on the side of bringing this to a swift conclusion? Well, I don't think that's going to ever happen, no matter what he does. So
1: let's take your scenario and suppose, against better judgment, mine included, that this rather voluble man decides that he can sit down with Mello and tell him everything. And that will not, in my view, end anything about what's happening. What will happen is Mueller will say, "Here are 14 things that the president said. Each of them has 12 different ambiguities. So now I have myself a huge number of things that I can possibly investigate, and I'm going to have to follow all the leads that can." came out of the discussions that I had with the president, and so it's going to take me another six months in order to do it. Uh, The other thing, of course, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you just don't sit down and talk to the president and do something or the Mueller investigation. This is an extremely explosive and sensitive situation, and what happens is the amount of preparation that you need before you can do this correctly is great. Uh, one of the things that was wrong with the decision in the United States against Clinton, uh, which said that the president could be subject to deposition, is that Justice Stevens had no idea that in many cases deposition is where the game is played. It's not at a trial. And if you trap somebody in some kind of a contradiction in a deposition, uh, the entire future course of history is going to be altered in this particular case by the impeachment hearings that followed in uh 1998. So I don't think that there's that easy type situation there. And also, I mean, just to give another possibility, Mueller talks to him for three days, and not only does he investigate everybody else, but two weeks later he says, Mr. President, I got a bunch of other questions I want to ask you. And since you've waived any conceivable presidential um, privilege by coming here the first time, uh, now it's time to sit down again. Uh, So I don't think that that solves anything. And my advice to the president would be that he should stand fast and not give any testimony with respect to anything that he's done uh, during office. And that's going to provoke a huge legal fight. I don't know whether he will win it. My hope is that he would because I think it's wrong to allow these things to go forward. And if it requires overruling the Clinton decision from
0: uh, the 1990s, so be it. Well, I, I tend to think that while the president should, uh, not just as I said, walk across the street and start answering all questions. I do think that the president needs to stop short of asserting every possible defense to testimony in the way that other defendants were. Uh, the president fundamentally is not like other; he's not a defendant yet at all. He may probably never will be, but he's 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 he, he is unlike any other target or subject or witness to an investigation because the president alone among everybody else in this country has a constitutional duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed and not just the laws governing the process of the Mueller investigation, but also the laws with which uh, he is now being questioned as to whether he actually violated themselves, violated the law himself, such as um, statutes on obstruction. And I tend to think a lot of the claims about obstruction are very weak. Um, But the fact remains that the president, in addition to Mueller, has a constitutional obligation to make sure that those laws are faithfully executed. And so I think that actually weighs on the side of the president volunteering more information than an ordinary witness or targeted of an investigation would do. And in addition to all that, there's the point I raised earlier. The fact is the president was elected uh, to do a job uh, to to carry out uh, the laws and the policies of the United States in the public interest. And his ability to do that while he is under this investigation or surrounded by these investigations is it it seems to weigh down on the ability of the administration to actually carry out law and policy and to that end, while the president 's lawyers are telling him uh, to assert all the defenses that an ordinary witness or defendant would assert, and his lawyers are are pushing him to assert all of the usual institutional defenses that a president would assert. I do think that others around the president ought to weigh on him, uh, ought to try to prevail on him to be more forthcoming precisely in order to enable the president and the administration to do the work that they were elected to do. Now, of course, when the president, is spending hours every morning in what's called executive time, which really seems to mean uh, Twitter and TV time. I think there is an open question of how much these investigations actually are uh, taking away from his time. Um, It's not as though he doesn't have some time to spare. Um, But I do think that at some point, the, the sum total of the investigations could really begin to genuinely weigh on the presidency and the administration.
1: Well, I don't think it's just a matter of time. I think it's a matter of whether or not it's going to start to skew his judgment. And, you know, I regard him in many senses a highly unstable, utterly unpredictable person. And, you know, he's not the kind of person that I would want to have the CEO of my country. But, you know, there he is elected and he has to do this. Uh, But again, I mean, if one thinks that there ought to be more transparency, I have just another alternative. What the president does is he gets his own lawyer, I don't think it should be Ralph Giuliani to do this, and sits down and writes a public statement as to what his versions of the events were and puts it out to the public at large. And I think if he does it in writing and he does it in effect so that the rest of the world can see it, uh, it's certainly something that Mr. Mueller could use if he wants to to follow up in his own particular kinds of investigation, but it also should be able to clear the air. Uh, so I think that the implicit assumption that you made that the only way in which you can uh, get some degree of transparency on this is to talk to Mr. Mueller is wrong, I think that there can be a lot of other kinds of ways that the president can communicate his position, preferably through somebody who actually knows what he's talking about on these issues, this other one. And, you know, if we start looking at the kinds of things, um, it's not just a question of having to answer serious charges. It's a question of having to answer all the multiple charges that have been given against him. Uh, So, I mean, if in fact you really want to say, you know, I think Mike Flynn is a good guy and I hope you don't prosecute him, counts as essentially an order and counts as an effort as obstruction of justice, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then virtually everything that Barack Obama said when he said, hey, Hillary Clinton is really a wonderful woman, well, does that start to count as an implied request to the Attorney General of Letter Lynch that she ought not to prosecute her either? And that would count as obstruction of justice. I think, in effect, that before somebody forces the president to answer, you have to have a coherent account of what obstruction of justice is, which doesn't count into account everything that the president does. And so if you had the president found you know, destroying key doctrines or key tapes in the manner of Richard Nixon, then I think it's a very serious obstruction case. Because just to end this up, I don't think by virtue of the fact that he's the president of the United States, he is immune from criminal charges for obstruction of justice. I think that's way over the top. Uh, but I do think that the more narrow point uh, that he's being asked to answer about obstruction, when so far, as best I can tell, nobody has raised a credible claim as to what the particular form of that obstruction should be. And so at this point, I think the battles with the president over his many policies should be political ones. And I don't think that anybody does a hell of a lot of good in this particular case by trying to transform this into a legal dispute. So I think on this point, we still have a Shall we say a reasonable disagreement?
0: Right, and before I get back to the other points you raised at the outset, you know, having told uh, now President Trump how I think he should do his job, let me stop for a second and and let's pay some attention to how uh, Director Mueller is. Yeah, you're a
1: full service advisor. We're going to make you Doctor. Ruth. Well,
0: that's right. That's right. I um I with Mueller. Well, let me put it this way. A few months ago, I, I moderated a discussion at the Federal Society in Washington, D.C. It was a discussion with Ken Starr talking about independent councils. I think this was late last summer, early last fall. And in my conversation with Ken Starr, who obviously knows as much about independent councils as anybody uh, from firsthand experience, he made a, a really he, – he phrased things in a very interesting way. He said one of the challenges about being an independent council – is that you just don't have the same sort of institutional breaks and checks and balances that a normal U.S. attorney has. Um, even if you're being overseen by the attorney general in some way, Starr really wasn't because of the statute, Mueller might be. Um, even so, the special counsel is is free from some of the other institutional or practical restraints on his work, first and foremost, um, He has all the time and almost all the money that he needs to carry out this investigation single-mindedly. It's not a question of a U.S. attorney having to allocate scarce office resources among a variety of investigations um, with other competing demands on his time. With the special counsel, you really are a single-mission agency uh, a single mission prosecutor, and that's why independent prosecutors always find a, end up finding people to prosecute because it's why their job exists and there's no other real practical restraint on their time so starr said the challenge then for an independent counsel is to try to create within his office the artificial um, constraints and checks and balances um, through disclosure we're where allowed by law um, through um, other sorts of of deliberation forcing mechanisms within the office, and it's not clear whether Mueller is doing that. Uh, maybe he is. We just don't know. But I think the the absence of real transparency from the office, um, the absence of any transparency as to what the 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 internal checks and balances are, whether they're trying any sort of red team blue team. Um, constraint on, or, or sorry, uh, measure for deliberation within the office. We just don't know. And I think in the absence of that, we all ought to be very concerned about the practical power uh, of this office. And so while I think the president needs to be more transparent, I do think that that the Mueller investigation at this point is falling sh- far short of the transparency that it ought to deliver to the people and to Congress um, so that we all know. Um, what do you, What do you want him to say? Time- well, I'd say, uh, an ex to get back to your original point, maybe an ex-ante definition of what they see as obstruction of justice. Maybe ah. an, ex- an ex-ante explanation of how they think it fits with, um, with the president's power to fire executive officers like Comey, right? If we knew in advance what the investigation thought of the law before um, it continued to prosecute the facts, that would seem a pretty important thing to know up front.
1: I agree with that. Um, That's why I argue that the president should state his particular position, and and I think that Mueller should. One of the things that's sort of haunting about the kind of observation that you made referring back to Ken Starr was that they are very similar to the arguments that uh, Scalia made, not in the Edmonds case where he caves to the general imperatives to have more inferior offices. Uh, but in Morrison and Olson, where he took exactly the opposite position and said, uh, even though the uh, position here is narrow, he compared it like being the ambassador to Luxembourg, I think it was, uh, the powers run deep and there's nobody there who can essentially counteract you. And that was certainly the case with Alexa Morrison. And I think it's probably the case with Mr. Mueller. Uh, So then what are the other checks? Well, it's certainly not part of a large general office uh, with the usual lines of oversight review going all the way up to the Attorney of the the Deputy Attorney General. You don't have that. So it's going to have to come from its internal staff. And that's one of the things, of course, which is very troublesome. Uh, Mueller seems to have appointed only people who are confirmed Democrats, who have a built-in bias against the president. I don't believe that there's a single Republican that he chose for his particular staff. And even if there were a Republican, they would be Mueller-like a Comey-like or Rosenstein-like Republicans, uh, part of the establishment who have a visceral distaste for everything that the crude president politics of the Donald Trump uh, stand for. Uh, So there is some evidence of bias, and there's no evidence of internal deliberation, and there's no sign of output. I find it very troublesome in an investigation like this, that all of the stuff that we see prosecutions for are lying to somebody during the course of the investigation. And with Flynn, at least, there's at least some argument that he took the plea in order to save his money and his son uh, from further investigations. Or they are related to things which are essentially wildly trans, uh how we say, tangential to the essential problems that are here. And there's nothing which actually seems to have established uh, some connection between uh, what Trump and his authorized agents did and any Russian authorized agent of Putin did, which is, I think, the nature of this case. It is constantly said, and I share this concern, that the Russians got the best return on a couple hundred thousand dollar investment in corrupt tweets back in 2016, because what they've done is they've managed to destroy the morale and the cohesion of the United States and to require this country to spend millions upon millions of dollars in this thing, not only with respect to the Mueller investigation, but with respect to its political ramifications everywhere else. Uh, So I really do think that Mueller should uh, announce, this is what I would say, I'm going to basically tell you what I have and give a comprehensive report as of September 1st, such and such. I think, in effect, that there's a strong political motivation on the part of people who are hostile to the president uh, to try to keep this thing alive all the way through the November elections in the hope that it might tip the balance in either the House or the Senate.
0: I don't know Do you agree with that. Well, I agree with a lot of it. There are restrictions on what a prosecutor can disclose. Um, It's DOJ guidelines uh, limit what the prosecutor can disclose. So there is that aspect of things. Um, But on the whole, I agree. I think more transparency from not just the White House but also Mueller really is imperative at this moment. Let's talk quickly about um, – but not too quickly – about how Mueller got his job in the first place. This was the dispute you alluded to at the outset about the appointment of Mueller. Uh, We have a white paper and an op-ed from Stephen Calabresi, a very thoughtful conservative law professor, uh, laying out an argument on why the appointment of Mueller by by the Attorney General without Senate advice and consent violates the Constitution's Appointments Clause. Uh, Calabresi's argument is that uh, the special counsel is a what we refer to as a principal officer, which the Constitution requires be appointed only by the president with Senate advice and consent. Um, the Constitution has uh, has a clause for inf- what they call inferior officers, which isn't a defined term. Inferior officers can be appointed by the president alone or by the heads of the departments, like the attorney general, or by the courts of law when Congress authorizes that. But the question is, is Mueller an inferior officer? Now I tend to agree with the argument that was laid out yesterday. Um, I'm sorry, on 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 Monday, um, by George Conway, uh, who happens to be the husband of Kellyanne Conway, White House advisor. Um, it, it, he wrote at Lawfare that the special counsel is clearly an inferior officer who could be appointed um, under the Constitution by just the head of the department, namely the Attorney General or the Acting Attorney General. I tend to agree with Conway's assessment of the relative powers of the special counsel, namely that while he's powerful, he doesn't seem to be more powerful really or less accountable really than U.S. attorneys um, who can be inferior officers appointed by Congress or sorry, appointed by the attorney general when Congress allows. Now there is the question, I think Conway doesn't really grapple directly with this, whether Congress actually has specifically authorized the attorney general, to appoint this specific inferior officer, um, the special counsel. But on the whole, I tend to agree with, with Conway's argument. In the end, this really is a dispute of how power was allocated within the executive branch by the executive branch. Um, and so long as Congress has authorized this appointment by the attorney general, it's hard for me to see how uh, Mueller's appointment raises constitutional problems. What do you think?
1: Well, in general, I agree with you, but there's, again, the irony that I referred to before. Uh, This institutional arrangement is not all that different from the one that resulted in the appointment of Alexa Morrison, which prompted the uh, very biting dissent in Morrison and Olson uh, back in 1988. And Conway, of course, refers to the chief opinion of Chief Justice Rehnquist, which I think was a fairly weak opinion. And so then the question is, what does it mean to say that this guy has less or more power than other attorney generals? And it's surely less in the sense that the scope of the investigation is much narrower. Uh, But on the other hand, there's no institutional framework of checks and balances on top of this, which limits what it is that Mueller can do within this kind of framework unless we think that there's some degree of active supervision that's being undertaken by Rosenstein, of which there's no public exit at this particular point in time. Uh, So uh, what was going on here is he's relying on an opinion, that is that of Chief Justice Rehnquist, which I find a little bit dicey. I much prefer the Scalia dissent in that case, which then says, hey, this is actually a closer case because even though he has fewer powers, uh, in the areas where he does have powers, given what you've just said, uh, those powers are much more extensive uh, than they were before, and he's able to do things that no other attorney, uh, you know, general in any particular office, is able to do. And in that case, I'm I'm a little bit uneasy about all of this. I think in the end, uh, the Scalia dissent was still a dissent; it was never adopted as law. Uh, it's also the case that the uh, the way the special prosecutor disappeared was by legislation when it was not renewed. It was not as though somebody said it was unconstitutional. So even though I tend to have a stronger belief in the Scalia position than others, I think Conway is perfectly correct in saying it's the majority opinion that still governs. And if that still governs, uh, then it turns out that uh, the Mueller appointment turns out to be uh, constitutional. And it would be a complete mess if it were the other way, because we're not stopping this appointment before it goes into place. What we're trying to do is to undo the work that's already taken place for a year. I'm much more troubled, by the way, just to mention it, That so much of this investigation was driven by the Steele dossier, uh, which was submitted to the judges to get the original warrants going, uh, which was clearly submitted under false pretenses. That is, there was no explicit acknowledgement that this political document came straight from the Clinton campaign. And indeed, one of the things that I think you should investigate is... Who inside the Clinton and this campaign, including Mrs. Clinton herself, actually knew uh, what the Steele dossier said and knew whether or not it was true or false? So I think you're probably right on that one. Uh, that's not the point on which I'm most concerned about. It's the other things that I mentioned.
0: Well – Before we get to the pardoning issue, just a little bit more about the appointment. The appointment happened pursuant to Justice Department regulations that were implemented by President Clinton at the very end of his his administration in 2000. There were rules that did not go through notice and comment um, rulemaking. The Justice Department just announced them, um, which I think was right under the the Administrative Procedure Act's exemption for rules governing uh, internal agency Um, personnel uh, policy. I think you're right about that too. And so it was fine to put them up without notice and comment. I think for that reason, it's fine for the attorney general to rescind the regulations without notice and comment. I think there's already some rumblings that some of the president's critics will try to, will will oppose that and they'll come up with legal arguments why a rule that didn't go through notice and comment on the way in has to go through notice and comment on the way out, uh, which is ironic uh, given the the supreme court's uh, paralyzed veterans or sorry decision in mortgage bankers of a, a couple of years ago involving what's called the paralyzed veterans doctrine and we won't can't chase down that entire rabbit hole uh, on this podcast
1: was such a great title for a case? You better explain what the case said. Oh,
0: this this was a this this was a, a case from a couple of years ago. There was a doctrine in the D.C. Circuit called the Paralyzed Veterans mm-hmm. Doctrine. Had to do with a case involving, of all things, uh, the what's now known as the Capital One Center, where the Washington Capitals just won uh, the Stanley Cup. Uh, but it was a doctrine uh, arising out of the D.C. Circuit. Um, and the question was: Could could a policy that came out of an agency as originally as guidance didn't go through notice and comment? Um, or an interpretation, would it later need to go through notice and comment rulemaking to be modified? The basic idea being that at some point, certain authoritative interpretations by an agency become sufficiently – uh, they become sufficiently concrete, we'll say, um, that an agency can't undo it without notice and comment. And so people use that doctrine to try to block the Obama administration from reforming some labor regulations. And the Supreme Court unanimously rejected the argument, overturned the D.C. Circuit doctrine and said, no, the, the policy didn't go through notice and comment on the way in. And so it doesn't have to go through notice and comment on the way out. So that's a very long digression on the paralyzed veterans doctrine. Yeah. But so we have a yeah, very should, important Tom. Well, it is as an administrative law junkie like me i, I find it fascinating, and I'm probably be writing more about it at some point but you have you have the question of whether the attorney general could just unilaterally rescind the regulations, but then there's the question of whether the president could just do it himself or whether the president could just over could sidestep the regulation and fire Mueller himself because after all you know there's a the question: can a regulation bind the president and not just the agency itself? Uh, Richard, what do you make of those questions? What can the president do to either rescind the regulation or just avoid the regulation altogether?
1: Well, it's not at all clear given the way in which this thing was put together that the president was the one who put it in. And I think there's at least a respectable argument to say to the extent that this was exclusively within the purview of the attorney general at the time that uh, it was issued without notice in common. uh, He's the person who's going to have to do it, which then says, well, what about the relationship to the president? And we know at least in part what the answer is. The president's supposed to take care that the laws be stressed, faithfully executed. Doesn't mean he has to do it himself. Uh, One of the things he can do is he could say, uh, Mr. Attorney General Sessions, I don't like you anyhow. And now I'm going to boot you because you're not going to reverse this thing. I think he could fire him. That's not the same thing as putting, as getting rid of the regulation. But then he has to put into place an acting who has to agree with him or go through the confirmation process with somebody else before a Senate, which is likely to be very hostile to what he's doing. So I think, in fact, that in addition to all the political stuff, his legal options are not all entirely obvious or clear because I think, notwithstanding the fact that we've had over 200 years of administrative law in the history of the United States, the question of what the president can do himself and the things that the president has to do only through inferior or principal offices is not as clearly settled as one would start to hope. But on the political side, I think Trump's hands are absolutely tied um, because what's going to happen is the boobirds will come out. And if the argument is made that he's trying to get rid of this particular regulation in order to stop an investigation, people will say, well, there's smoke, there's fire. He's stopping it because he knows he's guilty. And at this particular point, Getting rid of the man would count as a form of obstruction of justice, no matter what you thought about the earlier affair with respect to Mike Quinn, Mike Flynn, and uh, uh, whatever it is, a uh, uh, director of the FBI, uh, James Comey. So I-, I think he doesn't have as many cards in his deck as he wants. And my view about this is, I don't think he should try to fire. Uh, Mueller or fire Sessions or fire Rosenstein. Uh, I think what he ought to do is to take a much more concentrated view and simply refuse to answer questions under interrogation. And then, as I've mentioned before, issue his own position as to what he thinks is going on and say, Mr. Mueller, you now know what it is I think, and you can take it from there without having to speak to me directly. I think any president who subjects himself to a deposition is crazy. Um, There's just too many ways that you can start to slip up. And, as every decent trial lawyer will tell you, if a defendant in a deposition gets 99% of the answers right, he can go to jail or be subject to enormous kinds of liabilities by getting one critical concession in the cost of that thing, which changes the entire complexion uh, of the overall um, trial. So I think the president is in a tight place. And of course, we know what his temperament is. And he will continue to be baited by the Democrats because he just doesn't know when to shut up. And you know, it's one of these things you can't coach a person to do. It's not in his DNA. I can still remember the one or two times that I've been under deposition. And my lawyer told me some advice that I give to everybody else. He says, when you are in a deposition, you think before you speak and you speak as little as possible. And I said, that really goes against character in my case. And he says, but you know, you're working for me now. You're not working for yourself. And one of the most important things that I always tell people is when you're putting business deals together, the lawyers work for you. But if you're in trial or in deposition and so forth, they're your bosses. And if you can't understand that reversal of roles, uh, then you're going to be a lousy witness and you may put yourself into very, very bad positions indeed.
0: You know richard i don't want to go too long in this podcast, but i really uh I really want to get back to the the point we started with the the question about a presidential self pardon and this obviously could fill up an entire podcast now of course let let's let's set aside for the fact um the the point that if the president were ever to pardon himself in this context um The impeachment issue would arise immediately. Setting aside all the political and practical constraints, just as a strict question of law, do you think that the president's constitutional power to grant pardons uh, includes or does not include the president's power to pardon himself?
1: I think the answer is that it does include that. Uh, Somebody wrote me a little note after the piece I put out in the Wall Street Journal and said, hey, if the president can't pardon the president, then the president is the only person who cannot be pardoned because there's nobody else in whom the pardon power is vested. People have suggested, I think, at the time of Watergate, that maybe Congress can do the pardoning, but that's a complete constitutional riff um, with which no foundations whatsoever. The second point I think one would want to make is that the pardon power is not a power to execute the laws. It's an independent power given to the president, like the power to do the State of the Union address or his ability to act as commander in chief. And it is not a judicial power. And if it's not a judicial power, then you don't have to deal with the questions of whether you're a judge in your own cause, whether you're giving reasons and so forth. Indeed, if it were a judicial power, not only would you um, have to show a want of bias. But that would not only cover the self-pardon, it would cover a pardon of friends, families, and associates, and so forth. And it would also mean, if it's due process, everybody's got a right to a hearing and all the rest of this stuff. And you would have to, in order to prevent self-pardons by the president, impose all sorts of, uh, shall we say, quasi-judicial li- you know, limitations on the pardon power. And there's not the slightest hint of history in the last 200 odd years, that anybody has ever thought that the pardon power was subject to those things. It's one thing to say, and I think this is certainly a wise thing to do, that the president is well instructed to have an office of pardons to advise him, because you don't want to take the political heat when you're faced with hundreds, maybe even thousands of cases, some of them having to do with Vietnam veterans, some of them having to do with drug offenders of one kind or another. You'd like to have some kind of advice and generally follow it, and I'm in favor of all of that. But I think there's a vast difference between the prudential on the one hand and the mandatory on the other hand. And the moment we start to say that this is a judicial power, it's not only going to apply to a presidential self-pardon, it's going to apply to every pardon, and it's going to require reasons, hearings of one kind or another, and make it into a judicial proceeding, which it manifestly was now, not. I've seen
0: some folks, I, I, maybe Lawrence Tribe, I could be wrong, but others, God huh. bless them. Protect. Arguing that, Protect. that the, the, the part that a president cannot constitutionally pardon himself um, for the same reason why uh, nobody can be a judge in their own case, and I see. Well, he said
1: this is not a judicial yeah. power. Yeah,
0: I, I, I hear these arguments, and and for me, the the pardon power says what it says. It is categorical, and the arguments that I think we'll see constitutional arguments. Um, that purport to explain why a president can't pardon himself are, are just sheer sophistry. Now, I will say, yes. and just one, one last thought in closing. Um, I'm writing about this these days, uh, in a piece that hopefully will come out in a few weeks. But right now, between, in the, all the issues we've discussed today, the pardon power, the impeachment power, uh, and and prosecutorial, prosecutorial power and discretion, we see in all of these constitutional issues that aren't exclusively or purely legalistic ones. And some of them are, are, are constitutional issues that simply don't reduce to any real um, uh, legalistic lines. And so for me, I think one of the real challenges in all of this is that ultimately the American people collectively through elections uh, will have to – I think inevitably will – give some sort of constitutional judgment. I mean, I think of this as, in a way, our constitutional moment, um, to borrow the line from Bruce Ackerman, um, that this is one of those times where you have a lot of big constitutional questions converging at once and being debated day in and day out by the American people. And I do think this is one of those special times when responsibility ultimately falls to the people and whatever judgment the people wind up making in upcoming elections, not just one election, but several um several elections i think will will have an immense impact institutionally uh, and constitutionally for a very long time
1: Well, two things stand by and then you can close it down as you always do so well. One is judicial review is not in the cards with respect to this issue. But secondly, when you talk about an election, it's not as though we have a referendum on a single issue. Uh, There's going to be congressional elections and presidential elections of which there'll be many, many issues. And so you have the bundling problem, which is some people may agree with the president on the pardon power and disagree with him on everything else. And so what you do is you get a kind of a global, Verdict, but you can't tie it down to any political issue. And you know, I think we just have to learn to live with this fact that when you're dealing with political institutions, perfection is unattainable, and it's always the second best which set of imperfect institutions you want to have uh, rather than having everything the way you want it. So, Adam, look, uh, you pushed me very hard today, and and I'm grateful.
0: Well, likewise, Richard, I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, I hope our audience does as well. So thanks again, everyone, for joining us for Reasonable Disagreements. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do uh, check out the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, which include Peter Robinson's Uncommon Knowledge, Russ Roberts' Econ Talk, Bill Whalen's Area 45, Victor Davis Hanson's The Classicist, and of course, last but certainly not least, Richard Epstein's podcast, The Libertarian. So thank you, Richard, and we'll talk again soon. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.